Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Tuesday, the 20th day of December in 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, Becky Kramer talks to Jeremy Mercer who's written a book about living in an independent bookstore. In fact, one of the world's most famous independent bookstores, Shakespeare and Company in Paris. But first, here's some news from the book world. In a note to readers, the New York Times has explained that it didn't hold the story of President Bush's illegal domestic spying campaign for three months in order to time release of the news to coincide with the publication of a book by a Times reporter. The Times said it held the news for a year because the Bush administration asked it to. The paper first came under fire on Saturday with the revelation that the reporter who broke the story in Friday's Times, James Risen, had a book coming out in January that included the information, but a statement from Times editor Bill Keller made no mention of the book. As Paul Farhey observes in the Washington Post, the Times said instead that it had agreed to remove information that administration officials said could be useful to terrorists, and that it had delayed publication for a year to conduct additional reporting. But as far he also notes, quote, the paper offered no explanation to its readers about what had changed in the past year to warrant publication. American Journalism Review editor Rem Reader also criticized the Times for that, saying, transparency is not only the right way to go, it's the smart way to go. Writer added, a year-long delay is tough to understand. Outrage about it on the right was matched in many instances by outrage on the left. The left-wing political blog, The Daily Kos, said the Times had, quote, betrayed the American people. Meanwhile, as Republican Senator Arlen Specter prepares to conduct hearings into President Bush's conduct, other rumors swirl about Times editor Bill, Bill Keller's status. As some ask, why did the president do something illegally that he could have done just as easily legally? Others are asking, why did Times editor Bill Keller agree to suppress the biggest story of his career? And through it all, James Risen's book, State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, is still on target to be released by Simon & Schuster in mid-January. In what appears to be an example of exactly what people in the book world feared would happen under the Patriot Act, which is still in force until the end of the year, by the way, a college senior at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth who ordered a copy of Mao Zedong's famous Little Red Book from the college library says he received a visit from two Homeland Security agents as a result. In a report, not from the New York Times, but from the small Massachusetts newspaper, The Standard Times, 
Pres Professor Robert Pontbriand says the student was researching a paper on communism for his class on fascism and totalitarianism. Professor Pontbriand says the student, who was afraid to speak to the newspaper, placed his request with the college library's inter-college loan system and was subsequently visited at his parents' home by two agents from the Department of Homeland Security. The agents told the student the book was on a watch list and that had prompted their visit. Quote, my instinct is that there is a lot more monitoring than we think, said Professor Pontbriand. According to a San Jose Mercury News report, more than 200 people in San Francisco stood in a pouring rain Sunday to commemorate victims of the 1937 Nanjing Massacre and to honor the late San Jose author Iris Chang, whose book brought the story of the Nanjing atrocities to a wide English-speaking audience. Chang's mother, Yin Ying, read from her daughter's book, The Rape of Nanking, The Forgotten Holocaust of World War II, which details the attack that began on December 13, 1937, and in which Japanese troops killed an estimated 300,000 Chinese people. Afterwards, Chang's mother and father placed a bouquet of white roses on an altar in their daughter's memory. Quote, Iris put her heart and soul into writing this book, and she disclosed the truth, said Yin Ying Chang. As Iris wrote, to forget the Holocaust is to be killed twice. We should never forget and never give up. Iris Chang killed herself, an apparent victim of depression, in late 2004. Well, history books say Pope John Paul I died from an apparent heart attack in 1978, just 33 days after he became Pope. But a new book says he was assassinated over his plans to radically reform the Catholic Church, according to Agence France Press Wire Story. The book, The Last Pope, by Portuguese writer Luis Miguel Roca, is not the first to speculate that the Pope was murdered. A 1984 book, In God's Name, by David Yallop, has sold over 6 million copies. But it does appear to be the first fictional treatment of a rather extensive conspiracy that Roca says is based on documents leaked to him from a secret Vatican source. So what was the reason for the Pope's downfall? Roca, already being billed as the next Dan Brown by some European papers, says, quote, John Paul I wanted to redistribute the riches of the church, open the church to women, and authorize the use of contraceptives. Publishers Weekly is reporting that most of the independent booksellers in New Orleans are back and having a busy holiday season. PW's Bob Summer reports all of the stores in higher ground areas, such as the Garden District and French Quarter, are open and doing okay. Joseph DeSalvo of the French Quarter store Faulkner House Books says he relies on tourist sales, so things won't be back to normal until tourism returns, but for now he's surviving on phone and email orders, many of which are coming through a website set up specially to help, the shopforneworleans.com site. Britt Trice of the Garden District Bookshop says Pat Conroy was among the first to call me after Katrina, and so far he's ordered 20 to 25 books. As to what people are buying, PW reports there's a brisk demand for books about New Orleans, and the hottest book by far is reported to be Tom Piazza's Why New Orleans Matters. 
And finally in the news, the Times of London has released its annual list of writer's quotes of the year. Amongst the many gems is an award for worst timing, which went to writer Jonathan Coe, who was asked on a TV show, if you could abolish one thing in the book world, what would it be? Coe replied, literary prizes. They wrongly encourage seeing literature as a contest or a news story. They've got to go. The interview subsequently aired just before Coe's Life of B.S. Johnson won the 30,000-pound Samuel Johnson Prize. And that's the news for Tuesday, the 20th of December in 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's December 20th, and on this day in literary history, writer Hortense Kalischer was born in New York City in 1911. The author of more than 20 volumes of fiction and essays, Kalischer graduated from Barnard College in 1932 and worked for a while as a social worker for the New York Department of Public Welfare. Though surrounded by the great variety of culture and languages in the city, Kalischer thought her personal speech and language rhythms came from the unique combination of her father a transplanted Southerner, and her mother, a German emigre. As a young woman, Kalischer married and moved to a small town where she felt increasingly lonely and isolated. Then one day, as she was walking her son to school, she got the idea for a short story, A Box of Ginger. It was the first story she ever published. And it was bought by the New Yorker magazine. On the experience of being published for the first time, Kalischer said, quote, First publication is a pure, carnal leap into that dark which one dreams is life. An elegant stylist, Kalischer is regarded as something of a writer's writer. Her novels, among them False Entry, Textures of Life, and Queenie, are written in careful yet lively and fresh prose, blending deft character analysis with complex storylines. Perhaps most highly regarded for her short stories, Kalischer is known for her insightful rendering of character through monologues, and often her short fiction contains stories featuring her semi-autobiographical alter ego, Hester Elkins, a Jewish child living in New York City with her large extended family. These stories were all published in the New Yorker magazine over many years, with her first collection, In the Absence of Angels, appearing in 1951, followed by several others, and finally, in 1975, by the collected stories of Hortense Kalischer. As a recipient of four O. Henry Short Story Awards, Kalischer has said of the short story, it is, quote, an apocalypse in a teacup. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's This Day in Literary History. I've got Jeremy Mercer, author of Time Was Soft There, a Paris sojourn at Shakespeare and Company, on the line. Jeremy, tell me, how did you end up at Shakespeare and Company? Uh, it was really, I mean, fairly miraculous. Um, I've been working as a crime reporter in Canada uh, for about five and a half years, 
and it was, it was a really unpleasant job in terms of stress, in terms of sort of darkness and the cynicism associated with it. And I'd always kind of been looking to leave. Uh, but it's a job we described as being golden handcuffs. Um, even though the work doesn't make you particularly happy, you get a good salary and you're sort of in the public eye. Uh, and then in 99, uh, 1999, I had my second true crime book come out. And in it, uh, I greatly annoyed one of my sources who uh, threatened me and uh, broke into my apartment, which was finally the push I needed to get out of that life. So, so that, that's what prompted me to finally leave the job. And uh, I sort of walked in, I quit. I uh, gave away my apartment, my car, most of my belongings, and I moved to Paris just before the millennium. And I likely should have had a plan, you know, because I had very little money. But I just sort of just went and started walking around Paris, thinking something's going to happen. And sure enough, one day I was walking, and uh, it was raining, and I saw this bookstore, and I figured, well, I can afford a used book. So I walked inside, uh, bought the book, and the girl behind the desk invited me upstairs for tea. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's how I came to the bookstore. And I didn't know anything about its history or its literary significance right. when I found it, but clearly I quickly uh, uh, discovered well, you talk in the book about your first encounter with the bookstore, and it, it almost sounds like you were not repulsed, but you, you certainly didn't feel like it was an inviting place to stay, and you actually left the bookstore, and you, you saw a copy of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man on the, on the shelf right there, and, and went back in, and that's when the, the, the book clerk offered you to, to stay for tea. Uh, wh what was it about it when you walked in the second time that made you stay? Oh, the invitation for tea. There's, there's a pretty girl behind the desk who invited me upstairs for tea. <laughs> that, was, that was about it. But no, it was a really mad, it's a mad place at the best of times. All these little rooms, it's a labyrinth, and there's always lots of people, and it's very chaotic, and so it's not exactly sort of a place you feel, you know, peaceful in perhaps your first visit. But uh, I quickly came to love the chaos, if you, if you know what I mean. So roughly how many, you know, tumbleweeds, as they call themselves, I suppose, are staying in Shakespeare and Company at, at any given time? Well, this is, this is what's really special about this bookstore. I mean, it's, it's very famous for its literary connections, um, as, as you know. Uh, the first, this isn't the first Shakespeare Company, I should add. The first Shakespeare Company was opened in 1919 by Sylvia Beach, and that's what had associations with Joyce and Hemingway and Fitzgerald. But that store was shut down in 42. Mm -hmm. The new store opened in 51, and this is one that has associations with Henry Miller and Anais Nin and uh, Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs. But what really makes the bookstore famous is that the owner is this 92-year-old now communist who really believes in giving what you can and taking what you need and all these sort of Marxist theories. And when he used to travel, he always stayed for free with people. Hmm. So from the very beginning of his store, he put a bed in the back and had a pot of soup boiling for visitors. And his idea was anybody who needed a place to stay or needed a, a meal could come to his bookstore. And he says that since he opened his store in 1951, more than 40,000 people slept at the store. And at any one, right now there's about 13 beds in the store. And at any one time, in, in midwinter, in the very dark, dreary days of winter, you might only get three or four people who are there in the store. But in, in sort of summer, in May, when there's lots of people coming through Paris, you could have as many as 20 people sleeping in the store at the same time. Wow. And there's no time limit on when you can stay, as long as you kind of perform chores to help pay back for being able to stay there, right? Technically, I mean, this is how it works. He says anybody can stay for a week. And when you stay for a week, you sort of do your, make your bed in the morning, you work an hour a day, and you try to read a book a day. And that's a general rule. But if you're going as a writer or, a pro, or you have a project or you're just a really special case, a lost soul, if you will, then you can stay for a long time. 
um, when I was there, there's a Chinese fellow who'd been there for a year. I myself ended up being there for five months. And also I was there, there's an old poet by the name of Simon who had been living in the bookstore for five years, if you can believe it. <laughs> so what made Simon such a, a great case that he could stay there for so long? I don't know if it's a great case, if it was very desperate case. Uh, when he came in, he was a heavy drinker. He's an extremely talented writer. But he's also uh, an alcoholic when he moved in. And so he sort of kicked the alcohol there over a year and a half. And then, because he kicked the alcohol there, he had a hard time leaving. It was sort of a security blanket. And he was also in his late 50s and mm. completely unemployable. I mean, he, he, he was a bit of a freak. So it wasn't like he could go get a job and get an apartment. The bookstore was really the only home he had. Wow. So George Whitman, who's the current owner of the bookstore, yeah. has he, um, he has you sell books as well, or is that a luxury that you can work your way up to? Well, I mean, he, he, he routinely gets people to watch the cash for him, you know, to sit in for an hour here if someone calls in sick. But he does have people who, who, who work for him. So that's not the big thing that people live at the bookstore do. They do a lot of sorting the shelves. They do a lot of sweeping and mopping of the floors. Uh, do all dusting, uh, cleaning the upstairs kitchen, painting, uh, any little tasks around the store. This is what he gets people who stay there to do. Uh, so we're not, not especially selling. But then again, you never know. You could be doing anything when you wake up in the morning. <laughs> well, with over 40,000 people having slept at the store, I'm, I'm sort of surprised that this is one of the first, if not the first, book about your, your stay there, correct? It, it, it's one of these amazing things because of all the people who come to the bookstore, it's like, it's like catnip for writers. I mean, everyone, there's such a fantasy revolving around Paris and its literary history, and so many people come every year wanting to write the great novel. And so many of those people end up staying at Shakespeare and Company because of its literary associations that it's, it's amazing that it's, it's sort of a low-hanging fruit, if you will, this wonderful story this, of this old man in this brilliant bookstore. And I think a lot of people have tried to write it down but it's not, it's not really a, a story that lends itself to sort of a fictional account. And to tell a story like that in nonfiction is, is very difficult because George is such an eccentric, cantankerous man that you have to be very careful writing about him. Mm-hmm. And he has no... I think there have been a lot of people who have been interested in reading his biography. Does he have a biography or any plans to do a biography? Sounds like he's lived a fascinating life. He's lived an incredible life. Uh, he was born in 1913, uh, yeah, he, he's traveling around the world with his dad. They just, he's in China in the ni- early 1920s. He saw the Great Depression. He tried to walk around the world. He, I mean, he's lived everywhere, done everything. Speaks dozen, a dozen languages, or at least bits of a dozen languages. But no, he's never really written a big piece about his life. And when I talked to him about writing this book, I explained to him that, I mean, it's going to be partially a biography of him, but I was far too close to him to write it. And he sort of said, no, no, you just you know, write your story of the bookstore. And he feels that there will be a big book about him, a big biography of him, but he doesn't think it will be done until about 10 years after he dies. Hmm. That's interesting. And he's 92 now, yes? He just turned 92. He's, he was born December 12, 1913. Wow. Yeah. In, um, in New Jersey. In, in, yeah, New Jersey. So I, I, that's what I thought it was, New Jersey. Now, I've seen conflicting reports. I've seen New Jersey and I've seen Massachusetts. Well, he's born in New Jersey. Uh, he's born... Uh, is there a place West Orange or something? Yes, it's very close. In fact, I live in the town next door. Well, that's where he was born. But then when he was, I think, almost a year old or so, his dad got a job. His dad was a, a science book editor in, in, in New York. And then he got a job as a professor at a college in Salem, Massachusetts. So he's born in New Jersey, raised in uh, Salem. Hmm. And citizen of the world, obviously. Clearly. Oh, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's been everywhere. He, his dream was to walk around the world. 
Now, the first thing he did is he rode the trains back and forth across America. Then he got off and he walked from uh, California down to Panama. Hmm. And this is actually his greatest story of hospitality ever. Because the whole time he was traveling, he never clearly paid for a hotel or anything. And one time he was walking through the jungles of Mexico, and he likes to tell people he, he was so dehydrated he passed out under a tree. And he's woken by local natives, and uh, they carried him back to the village, and then they resuscitated him with milk from a nursing mother. Oh my gosh. And for him, that's what always story. been the epitome of good hospitality. And it's sort of what he tries to do for everyone who comes to stay with him. Although instead of mother's milk, he feeds them really strong pepper soup. <laughs> well, probably a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how the, the wanton youth of today would react to be, you know, fed from the teeth of George. Yeah. <laughs> and has he seen? Has he seen the book? And has he approved? He, well, he knew I was writing it, and then uh, last year, uh, I just before I sent it off to my publisher, I went up to uh, show it to him. So I was staying with him at the store again, and he read it, and he came downstairs, and I was sitting at a table with three or four other people, and he slammed the manuscript on the table, and he says, it's badly written, it's got a horrible title, and there's a lie on every page. And uh, everyone at the table looks around at me and goes, my God, he really liked it. <laughs> um, which, is, which is, you know, that's about a, a decent reaction from George. And sure enough, afterwards, we went out and had a few beers. And ever since he read it, I've become sort of like the muckraker, if you will, mm-hmm. but always welcomed with open arms. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, the book was first published in the U.K. under the title um, Books, Baguettes, and Bedbugs, correct? It was actually first published in uh, America okay. under my title, which is Time Was Soft there. And then Orion uh, bought the British rights, and it came out about two weeks later in, okay. in Britain, under, yes, that, that horrific, horrific name you just <laughs> mentioned. And actually, that's one of the few things that George is really upset about, because he, he really feels he's a good host. And it is hard to live in the store. It's, it can be very dirty, all these people living there, and it's not, you know, lots of, lots of dust and no real bathroom facilities. But he's so proud of being a good host, so... He hates this long-running rumor about the bedbugs. Mm. So for the British publishers to change it, and they changed the title without my permission, without my editor's permission, it was, it was really quite upsetting. Mm. It really upset George. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. No, I, <laughs> I was curious about it, though, because the titles are so different. They're incredibly different, and I know that sometimes they're changed for the different markets, but there's just a completely different connotation with both of these titles. So that's interesting to know they did it without your permission. And it was, it was the marketing people who did it over there. It's, I got very lucky because a young editor at, I think it's called Weidenfeld Nicholson is, okay. is the imprint at Orion. And she really, she was given the chance to pick two, two or three books a year, and she really loved the book and took it, and she, it was so important that it did well for her because she has so few choices, you know, mm-hmm. that she talked to the marketing people, and they said, you know, that, Time was soft there is a very sort of vague title, and they wanted something that would immediately strike home, you know, Paris, books, and sort of Bohemia, mm-hmm. and so they changed it, and uh, it's sort of ironic, because a lot of time you hear titles being sort of dumbed down, if you will, for the American market, mm-hmm. like you think of Harry Potter, right? Harry, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is considered too cerebral, but in this case, it's the reverse, it's true, you know, a title's being dumbed down for the British market, hmm. so. That's so interesting. Mm. Um, I know you've been doing a, an incredible amount of promotion for the book, uh, true to the fact that it is a store, a book about bookstores and uh, mm-hmm. all love of reading. So you've done a 44-day, 23-bookstore tour of the U.S.? It was, it was just nutty, yeah. I was, um, I was visiting only independent bookstores. I used to be, uh, I still am an independent publisher with my art association, Kilometer Zero. Mm-hmm. 
So we've always distributed only through independent bookstores. And it's always independent bookstores that give us the greatest chances, you know? Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare and Company's independent bookstore. And Like, to be honest, I, I don't know if anybody who sells books is doing noble work, right? They're spreading the word. But Absolutely. I think we almost need a special section, a classification for independents, because they're almost like community centers, homeless shelters, you know, drop-in psychological centers. And so I really wanted to support them in the work they're doing because it's, it's so hard right now having to compete against, you know, the online booksellers and the big chains. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we applaud you here at uh, Moby Lives Radio and uh, Melville House, another independent publisher. Ah, well, good on you. And I'm um, very impressed by the stamina to visit uh, all of those cities and all of those stores. And I'm, I'm really, really happy to hear that it went well. Oh, thank you. So you're going to be doing more promotion for, for Time with Soft there in, in January? Uh, they're trying to get me to come down to Connecticut to do more gigs. Mm-hmm. But if this, I have to go. I have to, I have, my next book is due September, and it's so much work ahead of me that I kind of just want to close the box on this one. And uh, I'm running away to this incredible bookstore on the Greek island of Santorini. Mm-hmm. So I'll be hiding out in this sort of Greek house for four months and just pounding out the manuscript. And I'm getting that knot of nervous energy in my stomach mm. that says, I have to get on this because it has to, you know, I want, it, it's going to be a superb book if I give it the attention it deserves. So I don't know. It, it's really all about juggling all the different demands. Right. So well, which you'll, is a long way to say I may be coming back down to Connecticut for more gigs, but most likely what I really want to do is just hide away in a dark room for four months. Right. Well, I, I hardly think going to Santorini is hiding away in a dark room. Well, it's true. I, I do get to... The best part is I've always wanted to have a dog, but I've never... I live sort of such an unstable life. I've never been able to have a dog. But on the Philip Greek Island, in the summer, there's all these tourists and people there, and so there's lots of dogs in the community. Mm-hmm. And in the winter, the population drops from like 10,000 to 100. So all these dogs have no masters. So I'll be able to adopt a dog and walk around the island with a dog every day. Sounds lovely. And, uh, and yeah, and you should check out the, the bookstore. It's uh, Atlantis Books, which is www.atlantisbooks.org. It's a collective of uh, uh, artists and writers who set up this communal bookstore. And it was actually founded by two Americans. But so. you won't be living in the store this time? This time, no, because I have so much work to do. I don't think I can handle the, the communal joy. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to rent a house next door. And listen to this. In summer, the houses rent for 2,500 euros a month, these beautiful Greek villas. Mm -hmm. But in winter, non-peak season, the same house rents for 200 euros a month. Wow. So even even I, a poor writer, can afford to to pay rent for four months. That's great. Yeah, I know. It's going to be superb. Now, on the way there, you're going to be stopping back at Shakespeare and Company in France, or no? I'm going to be stopping in to say hello. And uh, we'll see if if George has forgiven me for the uh, the bed bugs title yet. (laughs) Um, well, show him a copy of the U.S. edition, and I can't imagine him being anything but pleased. Well, that's it. You know, and w- the best thing that happened recently is I was really nervous about what... Uh, he's very close friends with Lawrence Ferlinghetti mm-hmm. of City Lights. They're the, oh, he, Lawrence used to date George's sister, and <laughs> they've been friends forever, and their bookstores are sister, sister stores. And Lawrence just wrote my editor a long letter saying how much he enjoyed the book and thought it was good and accurate and a, 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 a good contribution to sort of the canon. So, I mean, I, you know, everyone's really supportive of the book, so I think George will get over the, the sort of bed bugs light. <laughs> I'm sure he will. Jeremy Mercer, time was soft there. Thank you so much for talking to Moby Lives Radio, and good luck with the next book. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on. And that's our show for Tuesday, 20th of December, 2005. Thanks to Jeremy Mercer for coming on to tell us about his time in Shakespeare and Company in Paris. 
And come back tomorrow. Laura Miller is going to follow up. We talked to her earlier about putting together her year's best list. It's up now. She's going to talk about her selections in what will be our final show of 2005. For now, thanks to engineer Andrew Steinmetz and to the crew here at Melville House, Peggy Kramer, Kelly Burdick, and publisher Valerie Marians. We'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. For now, don't forget, that whale is out there, man.
कैसे भुला सकती हूँ मैं तेरी हर बात को सीने में छुपा रखा है तेरी हर याद को हाँ याद है मुझे सब याद है हाँ मैं याद है